Hello, I'm John J. Thompson, and it seems you have fallen way down the True Tunes rabbit hole. Maybe you've come to the podcast recently and are just working your way back to our first few shows, or who knows, maybe someone sent you a direct link to one of these early outings. All I can say is welcome, thanks for stopping by, Bruce and I are glad you're here, but have some mercy on us please. I'll be honest, when Bruce and I went back and listened to these early episodes, well, let's just say it clearly took us a handful of shows for us to get our feet under us. We knew what we wanted to do, but the way to get there took some tweaking. But the interviews are still valuable, and it's probably worthwhile to have these available as documents of our evolution, so we've trimmed them up a bit, tried to keep them timely, and inserted these little disclaimer introductions to each one. You might still hear a few dated references, some wonky edits, and some rough fades, so have some mercy on us as you dig these earliest episodes out of cold storage and enjoy. Thanks for listening. Oh, and if somehow this is your first exposure to our show, please check out any of our more recent episodes for a more accurate representation. Okay, Bruce, roll it. Hey, this is Mark Bird from Hammock, and you're listening to the True Tunes Podcast. Hello, I'm John J. Thompson, and the guy over there behind the mixing console is my co-producer, Bruce A. Brown. Welcome to the True Tunes Podcast. You might not know Mark Bird's name, but I bet you know his music one way or another. If you're a church person or a fan of church music, you probably know the song God of Wonders. He co-wrote that tune, and it became massively popular in the CCM and modern worship world. If you grew up listening to alternative faith-based rock in the 90s, you might have known his band Common Children. But if you're not familiar with any of that stuff, but you watch television and films, you have probably heard the instrumental music Bird has made, along with his longtime musical partner Andrew Thompson, also formerly of Common Children, under the name Hammock. That group's ambient post-rock music has earned rave reviews, been celebrated by the likes of Sigarosa's Jonesy, and has been lauded by music and film critics around the world. Hammock has found a devoted fan base and has been featured in a wide range of films and television shows, including the 2017 film Columbus and the stunning Ricky Gervais Netflix series Afterlife. the scenes, Mark lived in a world of hurt that no amount of guitar effects, feedback, or liquor could drown out. On this episode, Mark Bird will talk about his story of pain, addiction, confusion, and doubt. He'll tell us about everything, from God of Wonders and Christian rock, to Ricky Gervais and post-rock glory, and from making as much noise as possible to trying to hear that still small voice again. It's a hard road, and Mark pulls no punches. 
You hear me talk a lot about listening to better music and listening to music better. And Mark, through Hammock, really pushes us to listen and to hear. This is music that defies convention. It forces contemplation, or at least invites it. It creates space. So on this episode of the podcast, we are going to treat the conversation a little differently. For one thing, it's a long episode. We're going to give it a little bit more room to spread out. We thought about cutting it into a two-parter, but felt that would break the flow too badly. You might not be able to listen in one sitting. That's okay. But do make it to the end. You'll be glad you did. Also, Hammock has given us permission to use their beautiful music throughout the episode. So, Bruce is going to use that music to frame the conversation in the most contemplative way possible. Instead of having a jukebox feature this time, we'll play Hammock's music throughout. We'll tell you what it was on the show notes page at truetunes.com. This might be a challenging conversation for some of you, and it can be a bit brutal at times. Mark and I have been friends for a while, so we jumped right into the deep end without a whole lot of warming up. But there is some real beauty here, stark and unflinching though it might be, and I hope you'll hang with us to hear it. So now, with no further ado, please welcome songwriter, producer, guitarist, and composer Mark Bird to the True Tunes Podcast, as we try to listen past the noise for the sound coming from somewhere deep and true. Thank you for taking some time to to be with us today. How have you been? Uh, how how have you been hanging in there through this weird year of ours? Uh, you know, for the most part, I'm I'm pretty good. Being in a recovery community, we're we're learning to have meetings on Zoom and to not meet in person. Uh, so that was the big adjustment. There's been some folks that have fallen away, shall we say, in the process of this. Uh, but for the most part, I would say that I work from home a lot. The only thing that's been different is that Andrew, um, his house got hit by a tornado. So we've not been able to work at his place. So I've just been here. So as far as work, it hasn't been that different. It's just, uh, I just miss seeing people in person. I miss giving hugs and getting hugs. You know, that's the kind of stuff I miss. You mentioned the recovery thing, and um, it really was special to see Hammock reach out with that playlist and the uh, the music for the quarantine time. A lot of people, I made a I made a mixtape. A lot of people were like, "Hey, we need music for this. We need, you know, obviously." most of us need music for everything. Yeah. <laughs> I can't Absolutely. hardly drive to the Kroger without having a playlist. But your music is uniquely designed to help people 
in a time like this? At what point when the reality of what we were going to be going through was sitting in, did you think, okay, we need to think about our ministry in this moment and offering something to people for for this uh, quarantine that only Hammock really could do. When did that hit you and how did you approach that? I guess it was pretty early on, um, but it's probably about a month into it. I've always thought that to be countercultural in our day and age would mean to be something that that uh, approaches silence as, as something that um, we crave and long for and that we are actually thirsting for, maybe not even knowing it. And so... Early on, I just wanted to make a playlist that that really basically spoke to me because I know I know what it does for me whenever I'm lost in my own head. And so, yeah, I mean, early on, I, I would say that, that that I decided to do that. Uh, but, you know, um, we just uh, mastered a 20 minute little guitar loop that I did. And then we're doing a 12 minute piece. If you feel like you're going to lose your mind, um, you can get lost in something that kind of pulls you out of that kind of insanity. You know, I think that music is the inner landscape. Sometimes it's great to be aggressive and angry, but a lot of times where we are right now, that's just so in our face all the time. Mm-hmm. That I, I think that, that, that the music that creates an inner landscape of stillness or reflection so that we're, wherever we stand on the issues, when we speak out, we're not just reacting with more noise. It's coming from a space where what, how we say what we're going to say is equally as important as what we're saying. Because I just think anger with anger just means more anger. Noise with noise means more noise. To speak truth to power or to whoever, I think, needs to be less reactive and more of a place of reflection. And I think our music and the music, the genre that we run in is, is a great space to kind of sink into so that when you speak, it's not just seeing the person as the other, but you're actually saying something that's true, but also from a place of kindness. I want to um, hear a little bit about your backstory. I remember walking through this with you because I kind of knew you from the beginning. Kind of give me a little bit of a sketch of the stuff that was in the pot stewing that that created Mark Bird. You're you're an interesting dude. There's a, there's a <laughs> lot of story here. <laughs> I grew up uh, in a really small town, El Dorado, Arkansas, in the very deep south, and for the most part was up until around nine or 10 years old. I was just a good little Episcopalian boy who had a pretty normal childhood, uh, public school. My parents went to uh, a weekend event that the Episcopal church put on and they came back having had a 
an experience where they were speaking in tongues and they were like not acting like Episcopalians. Let's just say that. That was uh, a Curcio, right? Yeah, it was Curcio. Yeah, yes. my, my parents were a big part of that too. Yeah, yeah. And exactly. my grandparents too. Yeah, yeah Decalores. Yes. Decalores. Yeah. Roosters <laughs> yeah. and rainbows everywhere. Right? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. And so the thing about it though is that I was, a, I was attracted to something. I was very young, very curious and asked them what had happened. They told me. And what proceeded to happen is, I mean, the reason we're Episcopalian is not because, you know, my they sought out like the the, the, the spiritual paths because my dad owned a liquor store. And as you know, the old jokes, wherever three or four Episcopalians are gathered, there's always a fifth. And so um, <laughs> it's been my experience. Uh, so my dad wanted to stay in the Episcopal church and kind of like share this awakening that he had. And my mom wanted, wanted to move towards a more what they used to call full gospel. And so she started going to this other church that was very kind of Pentecostal. And uh, they just kind of went their separate ways. And then my mom spent a weekend down at the lake house my grandparents had in prayer. And when she came back, she told us that God, Jesus, actually had told her that they were unequally yoked, spiritually unequally yoked, and that God had told her to leave my dad. And so around that time, around nine, ten years old, they had pulled me out of public school, put me in this Christian school, which really was just a school for troubled kids. It was a brand new school, and it was and, and my mom's ex boyfriend from high school was principal, who also happened to go to the church that she wanted to go to. And my parents split, and my dad became anti all that stuff, and my mom became hyper. I mean, I remember the first service where I was sitting in that church, and my mom said, "You can say amen anytime you want to." And I said, "Really?" She said, "Yeah." So I sat on the floor underneath the pew and just randomly said amen throughout the service, no matter Almost what was like being a curse word. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was like Tourette's amen. Amen. So, um, so basically, at that point, I'm in a different school where you're wearing a tie, American flag tie. You're you're being taught that you know America is is the city on a hill. My dad's anti-religious at this point. My mom, oh, so he, not just anti-charismatic, but anti. Uh, he he ended up he ended up just not going. I mean, he 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 ended up not going to church at all. I mean, he tried until I was probably around twelve or thirteen, and then he got remarried around when I was twelve, and then that was it. No more church. So anyway, my mom ended up marrying her old boyfriend from high school, and uh, he was the principal of the Christian school. I got into to drugs almost immediately like when i was i was sexually molested i learned all of these things that a nine and ten year old boy who was sensitive i'm a very sensitive kid uh it wasn't time for me to learn those things yet i got introduced to black sabbath and acdc so that was an awakening um uh, all this kind of happened around the time that i was going through all these changes family collapse out of school social collapse and then i then i met you know marijuana and it was like well, this 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 certainly helps. This this puts this puts me back in my body, shall we say? This puts me back in 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 a space of of feeling okay in my own skin. And um, from there on out, I could never win with my dad because I was at a Christian school. He wanted me to be a businessman in public school. I could never win with my mom because she wanted me to be a preacher. And here I am, just a musician. And honestly, I think music and guitar. When I got my first electric guitar when I was 13, probably saved my life I, from a lot of, like I could have gotten into more trouble than I actually did. By the time I was 11 or 12 years old, I was suspended from school for having 
marijuana and, sh- and, and selling it to some of the older kids. And so at an early age, it felt like the foundation was shook. And then being in a small town, you're kind of like viewed as, well, that's the guy that got on drugs at an early age, stay away from him. So the people I hung out with were people who loved loud rock and roll and drugs and alcohol, you know? And, and uh, I tried to live in both those worlds my entire life. I tried to make both of those and I would go to, you know, a youth camp and, oh, Jesus, please help me, save me. And then, you know, two months later, I'm like, that's not fun. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. so so I'm, I'm, uh, it was uh, a lot of a lot of contradiction and a lot of questioning and a lot of confusion, um, a lot of rebellion. And yet at the root of everything, I think for me is a longing to belong to feel okay music can do that drugs can do that but you know carl Jung has a saying that that um the addict's thirst is really it's spiritus contra spirit which is we 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 substitute spirits which is alcohol another word for alcohol for spirit and our ultimate craving is is for spirit and he uses that medieval language of we crave a union with god and, and the scripture that he used for that is, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs for you. I really, truly tried to uh, fix myself with alcohol. And, and that all came to a head when I was um, eight days after I turned 18. My best friend who I'd been running with, he was sound guy for our band. We had a band hall and all that. And we were hanging out all the time. And, and I had gotten into psychedelics and really got into to trying to find spirituality through that. And and then I just finally had a, had a moment where I was just tired of being who I was. And my mom told me that I could go to that I didn't have to go to church. I spent the night at my grandmother's house with a friend. And my mom told me I didn't have to go to church on Sunday. I was like, cool, let's drop acid. So we dropped acid at like around 11 o'clock. Well, she wakes me up. It's like, you're going to church. So I go to church still on, still tripping on acid. And I hear this lady speak and she's got this big black afro and um, and she's saying things and I'm having this moment. And I literally went home that afternoon, got on my knees and said, I'm done. I can't do this anymore. And uh, the next night I'm talking to my best friend who I spent every day after school with him, every weekend in his van, spending the weekend in his parents' RV that was parked in his backyard. We were very close. He had gotten kicked out of a Christian school. I had gotten removed from two of them. And... um, on a Monday afternoon, after I got a, had that experience on a Sunday after church, uh, he said, "Hey, do you want to come over? I'm I'm going to drive over to Robbie's. We're going to play some video games." I said, "I don't want to. I can't. If I come over there, I'm going to end up using again. I don't want to do that. And I'm tired." I said, I "Said, look, can we just meet together on Friday and start talking about our future? Because we're getting ready to go to college." He's like, "Man, you know what? I'm 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 ready to change. Yeah, let's do that." The next day, I was walking around and. Um, Around, around school and a guy came up and said, did you hear Robbie's in ICU? And I said, what? Robbie's in ICU? He said, yeah, he was in a fire. And I said, what do you mean? I said, Baron, my, my friend, was going over there to uh, to play video games. He says, so you don't know. 
He said, Baron's dead and Robbie's in ICU. And I said, what happened? He said, well, they didn't play video games. They got in Baron's van. They went out into the back roads. They had a gasoline can in the back that we used to use as huff gas. And he was driving bumps, you know, and, and, and it spilled gasoline all in all inside the van. And um, they didn't know it because they were they were filled with fumes. So they didn't smell it. Robbie had the door open to the van. Baron lit a cigarette blew Robbie out of the van and Baron just kind of breathed in flames and just, it burned him up. And Robbie tried to save him. And in the process ended up in the ICU because he burned the skin off his forearms, trying to pull him out of the van. That was a big turning point in my life. That's probably when I decided to do something different with my music and try to go to this, you know, Bible college to try to find out what was wrong with me. I literally, before the night I left, I thought, I'm finally going to find out what's wrong with me. I'm finally going to get all the questions answered that I've always wondered about. And um, anyone who's ever struggled with addiction or alcoholism knows that if I don't change who I am sober, I will always go back to the well that, that quenches my thirst. And so once again, I'm in that place of conflict of wanting to do the right thing, but still trapped in this, this habit pattern of trying to fix myself with an outside stimulant, which is really just an interior fragmentation that I needed someone to make me whole. I needed somehow to find a wholeness that would make me okay when I'm sober. And and it's been a journey, man. You know, it's been crazy. Uh, when when we met, I was in Common Children and, and trying to sow my oats and do all that. And uh, and then I had, you know, it's it's I had a experience where I got into Alcoholics Anonymous for a little bit, left that. And then about six and a half years ago, I just ended up, I ended up having another breaking point, breaking open moment. And, and I was done. Yeah. I did have two and a half years where I didn't do that. I didn't use or drink, but I did nothing to change who I was sober. And if I don't do that, yeah, if I don't do that, I go back. And um, I used to think that my problem was drinking or drugs or whatever. Really, in the end, it was just drinking. But my problem is in my thinking and in my living. And, you know, they say we're we're powerless and our lives unmanageable. The way I look at my unmanageability, because I've never really had, you know, since since I wrote God of Wonders, you know, my wife and I have not been in debt. It looks like everything's okay in my life outside of it. But the truth is, is that if I'm an alcoholic who struggle, struggles with drinking, if I manage my life in a way that always manages myself back into drinking, that's just complete unmanageability. I am not a good manager of my life. And so I finally just gave up. I just gave up. And that's another story altogether. kind of want to drill a little bit into because I think a lot of a lot of our listeners and the people I'm talking with are kind of at the stage of life that whether they're the same age or not of you heading into that college era so you're a musician you're an artist you're you're trying to ask the right questions you're you're approaching it creatively you were going at it with the best tools you had available to you and you were you were trying really hard and you said you were going where you thought the answers were, which was a 
Bible college. What questions were you asking? Where was your art kind of factoring into that? As a young artist, how, how was your art kind of playing into that question asking thing? And then where were the answers missing the questions uh, and, and not helping you find the answers at that point in, in your life? How, how did that miss happen that early in your journey? Well, um, there was a part of me, John, that always knew that some of this stuff that I was being taught was wrong. And not just a simple adolescent rebellion, but like I knew this was wrong. My stepfather ended up not being a very kind. He died in 2010 with the, with the breathalyzer in his car. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he ended up not being the godly man that we all thought he was. And it was, it was really hard, just to be honest with you, growing up with, 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 with God being attached to everything, which was like making me read the Bible for three hours when I got home from school the biggest argument we ever had was over music and and he would read the david wilkerson book set thy trump set the trumpet to thy mouth and started talking about seeing demons coming out of the amplifiers at a striper concert and i said to him if god cared about what style of music it was he probably would have put sheep music in the psalms and immediately it turned you know violent Mm -hmm. and so i knew some of the stuff that i was being taught was wrong but I was just seen as rebellious and probably some of it was, you know, but, but I didn't know what else to do. And so the questions I had is, you know, what I know is that after that experience I had after my friend died was that I immediately started going to school and I noticed people that I had not noticed before people who were sitting by themselves and eating by themselves, the outcast. And I went and started having lunch with them, asking them who they were. Now that's a true, I think spiritual experience because I started wanting to see people the way I thought Christ was, which was compassionate, be with those who are literally eating by themselves, you know? And so I went to Bible college wanting to find a deeper experience with that. Instead, I got taught how everything that I was experiencing was needed to be questioned. Was the Bible true? How do you read it? Are you supposed to interpret a certain way? Is it all meant to be taken literal? is there a God, you know, and if so, which religion's right? You know, what, what, what is true? Is Jesus real? You know, the big one was for me was like, like, like I, even in the common children days was, is there a literal resurrection, you know? And if not, you know, if none of that is true, then what is it? What is there? Is it meaninglessness? And so I fell hard, you know, head, head first into the pool of existentialism. I mean, I went way down into that. And I fell into, eventually ended up in a place of deep darkness and doubt before I got sober this last time, where I was just like, this is nothing. We're a nothing. This is a meaningless place. We're screaming into the void. No one's listening. We're alone. And so early on for me, I met a couple of guys that really took me under their wing intellectually and turned me on to writers outside of the Christian tradition which I was raised in. So by the time you met me, a lot of folks that are kind of like discovering science and, and, and other things that like, whoa, you know, this is, 
is it always been like that? You know what I mean? It's like, it's like <laughs> when we discover it, it's like it's brand new and we need to broadcast it. It feels like everyone that's kind of having an awakening of doubt and and throwing away their faith, which which throw throw parts of it away for sure, throw it all out. And then we end up still being an evangelical because we have to evangelize everybody about where we are now. So right. we go from needing to tell everybody about Jesus and what we believe to we need to tell everybody about how Jesus is not real and what we believe. I think in the end, what it turns out for me is that I just want people to know what I think. Yeah, I, I, I just want people to know that I have important thoughts in my head, you know, and, and we want to be significant. We want to we want to be heard. We want to we, yeah. we want to know and be known. And that, yeah, that yeah. extrapolates yeah. out to everything. Right. And I was taught that, you know, if you wrestle too much with this stuff, that 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 doubt will lead you down the wrong path. And the truth is, is that I think we've all been raised in a very hijacked form of infantile Christianity, which is an immature kind of like certainty, not faith, certainty. We have to have certainty about these things. You know, there's no room for for a little bit of uncertainty or mystery. And the more I get comfortable with the not knowing, the more I get comfortable with mystery, the more I'm okay with just kind of like some essentials that speak to me. And then I can kind of like, you know, live with some of the tension that automatically is going to come with trying to pursue a connection with transcendence in the midst of a world that's telling you there is no transcendence, man. It's all a made up projection. Well, you know, that may be a new discovery for some people, but that's a pretty old psychological way of looking at things, you know. And yeah. so for me, um, I thought that I was going to get all the answers that I needed. And I thought that I was and I turned into a very kind of fundamentalist for a little bit. And then the questions came back in and and they never left. So you had the years doing Common Children, and you guys were not what I would think of as like a core Christian rock band. Like you weren't out there doing the bumper sticker kind of stuff. You were more informed by, at least in my estimation, it always seemed like you were doing more thought-provoking, questioning kind of music. And I remember when when you transitioned and, and you, you were doing the, the God of Wonders thing, and you also had hammock. You were just starting the hammock thing right around that same time. And this is before I started working at Capitol. I remember we were talking and you were telling me about those two things. I can't remember why. I think I wrote an article for somebody and I had to interview you for, I don't remember what it was, but I just remember you telling me these two really strange like departures. I wrote this real churchy song and I've got this thing where all we do is kind of drone on our guitars and there's no hooks and no lyrics what was happening with you that was first of all with god of wonders tell me a little bit about the story that got you to that place of that song where was that signpost on this journey well uh common children was not working out too well <laughs> <laughs> you were also playing with the choir then too yeah right? yeah I, I was um and uh you know at that at that time 
I was good friends with Steve Hindalong and Derry. Derry was kind enough to let me stay at Neverland for about three months, sleeping on an air mattress when I had no money, you know. And so transitioning into that is that I went home. I ended up living, I moved from El Dorado to Hot Springs, Arkansas, which is a pretty place, but it's also, you know, Arkansas. So I, I went to Hot Springs and I sat by a lake and I decided to write just kind of like let some things pour out and i'm when i'm in hot springs i kind of get back to my roots you know and so like i kind of got comfortable with uh just writing a, a, a worship type song i guess and when i came back i had three song ideas and and all three of them ended up on that city on a hill series but the the one that began was god of wonders and then shared that with steve steve had just landed a various artist project called city on a hill and when we recorded it, we thought for sure it was just going to be another song that we offered up to the wind and it was going to blow away and we'd never hear another word about it. And so when it hit, I did not know that you got paid to have your song played in churches. I had no idea. Uh, and I felt a little kind of moral weirdness to it because I didn't want the little small churches that I grew up in Arkansas having to pay money to play a worship song you know mega churches absolutely charge <laughs> well, the little, them charge them double you know <laughs> but the little churches don't pay very much if they pay anything. I, I know i know so so i had this kind of like weird dissonance and and so then all of a sudden that, that takes off and i'm thrown into this like hey would you like to write with this band and write with that and write with that and i'm like yeah sure great awesome so i'm now i'm doing this you know it it beats not having any money that's for sure Lord of all creation Of water, earth, and sky The heavens are your tabernacle Glory to the Lord on high God of wonders beyond our galaxy I remember, and tell me if I'm wrong about this, but I feel like you told me at the time something about you sitting on the top of your car, looking up into the sky down there in Arkansas when the lyric and the, the vibe for that song came. Am I remembering that right? Yeah, but I mean, it was it was more like around a lake and and, right. and all of that came about. And then, then Steve had from the Book of Common Prayer, some imagery also. I wondered, having grown up in, the, in a similar Episcopal tradition and and hearing and kind of watching this progression, if that wasn't in its own way kind of a moment of contemplation, it might have blown up into something much bigger. But that song to me, compared to a lot of what was happening with worship music, has more contemplation going on in it. And especially from you as an artist, it was a different tone. And I wonder if it started turning a page a little bit for you to be a little bit more reflective and a little bit more receptive to the universe and the energy outside kind of more mindful and aware. Is that, do you think that maybe there was oh, something going on like that? Definitely. I mean, 
if you look at any of kind of the worship type stuff that I've written, it's all about kind of a cosmic sense of, of the vastness of things, but yet also the dichotomy of the scandal of the particularity too. Like, like there's this marriage between the vastness and then this, this love, you know, uh, that we feel very insignificant, but we are, and we are, but we're also infinitely loved, I believe. So there was this definitely for me, it was an opening because what I realized is that what I learned during that period of time is that if I'm going to write those types of songs, I'm not writing my next big art statement. I'm writing a song for a mechanic who works on cars. I'm writing a song for, uh, a person who might be might pick up trash and what did that for me is that I, I read some of the parables and I realized that Jesus used all these simple the simple everyday imagery and he was no spiritual snob about it in other words when he was speaking to the masses he wasn't trying to give a theological dissertation he was saying it's like this mm. it's like this and so for me that period of time, I think that what was different is that it's like we're depleted artistically, you know, and 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 so it's a ghetto that we're living in, and you know we used to call it the Christian ghetto of, of you know of art. So the truth is, is that there's something to be said that that we love mediocrity, you know, we are okay with it, but when it came to writing worship songs, I had to check my musical snob at the door. And I had to write songs for the folks, for mm -hmm. the people. Right. Not everybody is called to be a great singer and an artist and can sing a complicated melody. To write something that's good, but yet simple and universal is a lot harder than most people think. Exactly. Right. <laughs> and the truth is, is that the songs that have ended up doing well are songs that I think, for me at least, started from a very pure place of just trying to find that. Not trying to get the next big this is going to be anthemic, man. Oh, my God. Everybody's going to be singing this. Can you picture everybody, man? Hands right. are going to go up. No, none of that entered right. my brain at all whenever right. I was working on that. And that's why I wanted to bring that up because of two things. One is that I knew you at that time. And now that I know a little bit more of what you were going through personally, I'm kind of imagining a little bit or visualizing that this accomplished something on your journey that didn't complete anything. It's, it's a moment, but it was a real authentic moment. But you have an experience where you were able to get out of yourself for a minute and see things a little bit differently. When you step into the hammock space, you're kind of sacramentally helping me get out of myself for a little bit because you're creating music that's kind of forcing me to stop and and listen. And you're not telling me what to think. You're not giving me lyrics. You're, there's a, there's a, 
a different gear that you hit with that. And again, it doesn't accomplish everything you need it to accomplish so that you can get sober or whatever it was that needed to happen. That's a much bigger thing. But it's also like, it's easy to push past and sort of think of God of Wonders or think of uh, of the industry or think of that stuff and, and move past the important thing that it was for you and the important thing that it was for me and for other people. And to say those songs, as simple as they are, can be really beautiful moments. They can be really sacramental moments. And But for the people that are now saying, I really feel called to write that stuff, if they're not careful, they're looking at it like, I'm writing for millions of people. I'm writing for a hit. I'm writing for, like you just said, millions of hands to go up, as opposed to sitting by a lake and listening and yeah. thinking, what is God telling me? What is what is going on? Yeah, and, and what I learned in that period too is what what's my idea of community and what's my idea of tolerance? Mm-hmm. If all I'm ever really doing is 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 participating in a faith community so that I can find people who I think are cool or like or are like me or look at the world, that's not community. I remember I went to a church in Nashville, not for church, because I went through a period where I didn't go for years. Um, I went for a service where somebody was playing and and it, this was this was a church service. And I looked around, I'm like, man, everybody here is like really young with chains and skinny jeans and it's like there's no wisdom there's no elders there's no welcoming of people who let's just be honest that are are that look different than you that are older than you that are not as cool as you that don't have all the great musical taste that you do i mean this is what's the scary part of what we do is that we end up making a community in the image of ourselves rather than actually being something that's universal. And so the, the whole thing about writing songs then was like, I wasn't thinking about writing for the, the hip ones. It was just, I want to, if I write for anything, it's just going to be so that if I can sing it, you can sing it. To go from this angry, in your face, reactionary common children to go from anger to acceptance it was like my attempt at setting an anchor down again mm-hmm. like i want to anchor here because i felt so adrift and i didn't know where my life was going and a moment of attempting to put anchor down again a song came out of it mm-hmm. and then a lot of people sang about it and that's great but the problem is is that we always want to camp out where we get comfortable but it's not like that. You got to pull anchor. You got to keep charging the hill. I always want to go where the view is beautiful. Hey, I think I'm tired of hiking. Let's just stop here. And I think because I crave for permanence that this is where it's going to be. This is where it is now. And then boom, something happens. And what happened after that was Hammett because it did two things for me during that during that time period is that, you know, I see the worthiness of writing a song like that. But I also got to see the business side of it, too. Mm-hmm. And I got to see a lot of things that, you know, that I knew were going on. But now I really saw it because now I'm not on the alternative end of things. I'm in the middle of it where, like, money is on the line, you know. And so I remember, I, I remember how you called me bef- and I was still in Chicago and you were like, I've, I've got the publishing deal and I'm doing these new songs, but they don't have lyrics and they're only wanting to pay me like 
credit like half a, or a third of the, the value for these songs because they don't think that these songs have as much value because they're instrumental tracks. But but if I write these worship songs, they're giving me full credit. And yes. I was giving you some advice, whatever. I, I don't know what we were talking about. Maybe it was when I was in, you know. And then within like four months, I end up working at that exact company, which was the funniest strangest yep. thing so yep. then i'm i'm actually working for you like pitching your songs for film and tv and that yeah. kind of stuff. and it's the hammock songs those are the songs that that got the most end up getting the most value during that era end yeah. up being the ones that the company was like i don't know if these really are gonna work <laughs> yeah yeah because i mean it, it, it's 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 all it was was just once again in the same way that i tried to write this song was basically man there's stuff that goes on inside of an artist that if you don't follow that your interior life begins to suffer, you know, and, and, and your and then that affects your outer life. And so I realized that I still have this artist inside of me that I don't want to just be a facilitator of other people's visions, artistic vision. I have my own right? and I need to nurture it. And so once again, when Andrew and I started Hammett, it was not because we were going to make a record. It was because he was working in that industry. I was too. And we needed like a safe space. And when I was a kid, yeah, I loved loud rock and roll, but I I mostly loved atmospheric type music. And and even when I played in like a worship band for church years ago, like in my early 20s, the sound man called me Mark, 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 because I had so much delay on my guitar, you know? And so, <laughs> so I always, I always wanted a, a, a vastness, you know, kind of like a space, a musical space to inhabit. When we decided to do Hammock, it was like no agenda. It was a reaction to everything having an agenda. Like, I don't want any agendas involved. I just want to do music that if we walked into a record store when they used to exist, that we, if we heard it playing, we would want to buy it. We would want to go up and go, what's playing right now? I don't want to try to reinvent the wheel. I don't want to try to be anything like, you know, I'm a music revolutionary. It's just, what do I enjoy listening to? What would I like to listen to? What would Andrew like to listen to? And we ended up having like 20 something pieces of music, maybe 30. And we made a record and we put it out. And then it just kind of like those first few years were really difficult. I had to do both the songwriting and hammock until finally hammock has been a full-time thing that I've done now full-time for, I don't know, seven, eight years, something like that, you know? And, and yes, you're right. It was looked at like, uh, like the dressing that went on the salad, but the worship music was like the main course. You know what I mean? It's like, it's like that. That's the way the publisher looked at it, and and I get it, man. I I, yeah, I sure. forget. I mean, it wasn't their job to. I forget. I forget how weird the the music is. The truth is, is if I'm honest, and this is just a story I think that maybe you do know, is that when I first presented Hammock at the boardroom around the table and had my Flash website up. Uh, you know showing and these pages printed like this is what i would like to do this is what i'm pursuing it has potential for sync licensing and film and all that the guy who was the head of publishing at the time takes me out puts his arm around me and he says you know mark i'm into art i appreciate art but at the end of the day i'm a capitalist pig and i and and i signed you to write hits and i said man i appreciate your honesty <laughs> And you know, he, you know, I remember, and I, I was right before I got there, and I know that he said it with a laugh in his voice. But he was—that's not their job. Like that's your job as the artist is to go push those things. And then I do know that they went out and did their best to get some of those placements for you guys, and that's—that is what they can do. But your job was to 
you're never going to, the industry people are never going to be the ones that are going to have those creative ideas and, and push boundaries. That's not what they do. Um, and anybody that thinks, oh, I need a publisher or a label to help me do this really creative, imaginative new thing, they're just always going to be frustrated. You know, you yeah. got to do that stuff on your own and then hope that they catch up to you. We'll be right back after this. We're back with the True Tunes podcast. I found the early hammock stuff to be very calming and meditative because I had my own personal background already fairly well established of looking for music that would help center me. You know, I had a little bit more of a history of using music that way. You know, did you, at what point did you kind of recognize that it did have that intent? Yeah, I, w- I would say by the second album, really, yeah. it was pretty pretty quick. Um, because really, honestly, the music that we made was to center us, mm. you know. And so, if it had a centering effect on us, then we kind of hoped that it would do the same thing for others. And then, being instrumental music, primarily instrumental music, what I'm amazed at is that the sounds that are inside of me, when they go out in the form of organized sound waves, there needs to be no narrative that it's trying to tell you, but it can still cause a lump in the throat, a swelling of the chest, an openness, or like literal kind of trying to catch your breath. And that's really probably the way originally music was was done. So I, I really got into the idea of what's just the power of music, just music. Just, just not necessarily the words. And then hanging out in Nashville, you realize, you know, there's a lot of great songwriters. And so there came a point where I'm like, I know I'm not as good as that person, but they can't do what I do musically. And so I want to do what I feel like feeds me and make, I mean, like I literally for the test of a hammock record, that second album was what did it do to me when I laid in my hammock and looked at the stars? because of the feedback we were getting from other people and they were telling us you don't know this but my father's last sounds that he heard was our was your music because mm-hmm. he wanted to hear your music before he passed and before he passed he said it sounds like the ocean mm-hmm. or i want my kids first sound to be this because suddenly what happens is when it's instrumental your own narrative is what's taking place and we're the soundtrack to it it's just music and it's meant to enhance whatever it is that you're going through we got you know people who like i did acid to it it was amazing we got people saying that they had contemplative services where they practiced quiet centering prayer or meditation uh you know the thing about kids being born people dying weddings i mean all of a sudden we're hearing people but what's in common is that 
it's creating an awareness. One of the best ones is I drove to work the last seven years the same route. I put your music on today and I noticed a tree that had been there for the last seven years. I never noticed it. Mm-hmm. And that's a kind of a, a, an audio creation of a contemplative state of mind. Your awareness goes up, things quiet down, and suddenly you're noticing things that have been there all along. And to me, that contemplative element is not much different than what I've come to believe spirituality is, which is I'm just discovering things that are hidden in plain sight. Right. But it's but it's blocked by my own sense of small, tiny self, self-centeredness, self-involvement. It's already there. I'm just not seeing it. And that's why I think the the countercultural thing that I told my manager when we first started doing Hammock, I said, I just want to have something that helps people notice things that are already there. Because I know that that's what it was doing for me. Mm-hmm. And I craved that. I mean, I just mm-hmm. longed to have that. Something that would quiet the thing going on here. Um, and if music can help with that, that's great. Ultimately, what I'd love for Hammock to be is just a prelude to people's silence. You know, they're 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 individual experience of silence if the music can quiet you down enough to where when you get done you sit five minutes in quiet man that's the best for me i I love to hear those kinds of stories It's interesting. It reminds me in, in Celtic mystical Christian uh, tradition, they talk about the five stringed harp. I don't know if you've ever heard of that, but they, that mysticism isn't isn't really about in in the Celtic tradition isn't really about like magical apparitions or um, that you're going to experience God through somebody interjecting a, a miraculous vision. It's about using this what they, you know, this tradition of the five stringed harp, which is really the five senses, you know, that that we have to use all of our senses in order to perceive God around us. But we're so numb to what's happening that we're just kind of bouncing through the world and we're oblivious to everything. And, um, and I was listening to your music thinking, the first time you hear it, you go, oh, this is just pretty. <laughs> you know, it's like, cause we're not trained to sit and listen to all those layers. And as each album has come out, each different, you've, you've added different elements. You get, to, I remember how excited you were when you told me about the, the choir and getting those human voices mixed in. But we don't take time to contemplate stuff and how many things are we missing? That idea of, of having it be a prelude to silence is, is amazing. I hadn't, I hadn't, I, silence terrifies me. You just told me a couple of weeks ago that you were going to a silent retreat and you were, you were scared it was going to mess you up or, or something. Yeah. Do you feel that doing this music this way 
has actually been a part of your own, un increasing your own understanding of what you needed to do spiritually in yourself so that you could come to a better place of health and wellness, there, uh, spiritually and emotionally? There, there's there's no doubt that it has. Uh, it, it had two two effects on me. One was most mostly positive, some of it negative. But, um, you know, we skim now. That's all we do is we skim. We, 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 we get online, we, we scroll through everything and we skim and we come away and go, I got it now, I got the information, all right? And, and we all kind of think that we know what's, what's going on. To me, what you're talking about is revelation, allowing things to reveal themselves to you. But for that to happen, it requires us getting in kind of a, a, a quiet space. And like you're saying, some of the music people listen to, like, oh, I could do that. Give me some pedal effects and some reverb. It's like, no, you can't. I promise you, because people, there's a lot of people trying. And 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 also, it's the same thing with our more orchestrated and choir and the human voices and all of that. That's when it really has been exciting for me. But what's happening is when you sit with our music long enough, and music like this, not just ours, or a great piece of music, things get revealed to you if you give it time. If you do the work, it will work on you. And a lot of times the work is just shut up. Be quiet. Drop the criticism and the presuppositions of what you think is happening and just be there. Let it happen. And then suddenly, you know, you, you hear things like, whoa, okay, yeah, there's that and there's that. Like I said, I think that's a lot like spirituality, which is if I don't do the work to just be, to just consent to what is, I will walk around asleep thinking that I'm awake. Mm. And so how this has helped me is that I've always been drawn to quite a reflection. Uh, on tour, I was always the guy going off, just find a quiet space, find somewhere to be quiet. I realized that I want those moments to be sustained. Now, this is where things get really honest and pretty dark. Mark mentioned a couple of names in this upcoming segment that he knew were familiar to me, including singer-songwriter Sarah Hart, who is a mutual friend of ours, and author, psychotherapist, Episcopal priest, and Enneagram expert Ian Morgan Crone. We kind of blast past their names in the conversation, but I don't want to assume that they would be familiar to all of you. But when I asked Mark about how he finally found his way through the noise, I expected him to be truthful, but not nearly this confessional. All I can say is brace yourselves for Mark's beautiful, terrible story. Around the time that we made Oblivion Hymns is when things really were getting dark for me. I was back just drinking heavy um, and I was drinking at something that I thought didn't even exist, which is I, I just didn't even really believe in, in anything anymore. I didn't think anything was worth anything and that this beauty that I'm putting out there is great, but it might just end up enhancing people's screaming into the void. So I want to say that um, 
there was an experience that I had in 2014 that changed everything for me. I would say at this time I might be considered either hardcore agnostic or atheist. If you put a gun to my head, I, I would say I'm not agnostic, and they said, "But yeah, but you got to choose. You think that there's a God? Do you think there's meaning, or do you think there's no meaning and no God?" I would have said, "Probably no meaning, no God," um, because I started believing that I was so delusional and easily duped, and I believed things that were fantastical. And if I could be wrong about so many things, I probably am wrong about everything. And so, making this music had been amazing. I got to meet. Yancey from Sigur Rós. I got to do shows with Stars of the Lid. Hammock, because there was no agenda, we met some beautiful people. Got to work with the band The Church from Australia, which had been heroes of mine forever. It was an amazing thing that started happening. And what happened is that's all I had. That and alcohol. Back then, I would go into some songwriting rooms and just like, you know, still trying to do that and just fake my way through it. And that imposter syndrome, combined with the shame of, of, of participating in addiction, it destroys your any kind of self-esteem you have, any kind of inner you know connectedness that you have to your real self. And in 2014, the very first of 2014 in January, I had neck surgery and I had put it off for months because they told me I had to quit drinking for 48 hours before I went under anesthesia. I couldn't go 48 hours without drinking. Mm. At the end of the surgery, uh, I had a long recovery ahead of me. At the end of the recovery, my wife asked me, what would you like to do? And I said, we had just been to Big Sur the summer of 2013. I said, I want to go to Big Sur to this monastery. She's like, there's a monastery in Big Sur? I said, yeah, I passed a sign. I saw it. I don't know why I'm saying this. I'm just like, yeah, I want to do it. I just knew I liked Big Sur. So my first trip out after recovering, traveling, sitting for a long time with my neck, playing, driving. I go to this monastery. And the reason I'm going is so that I can clean out mm. and so that I can be alone in silence. And I had every intention of spending about four days of not drinking before I showed up so that I could be okay before I got there. Nope, showed up to the airport, hungover, 7.30 in the morning, Nashville airport. I'm sitting there, shakes, sweats, so I immediately thought, I'm going to call my wife and tell her I'm sick. I can't do this. I got, I got sick. About that time, there's this Greek Orthodox priest that comes and sits behind me. And it's, it's this him and his wife. And there's this businessman that gets up and goes over to him and, and recognizes him and says, Hey, you remember me? Blah, 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 blah. We used to play Greek festivals. He's Greek Orthodox. And I, and I, he said, he said, yeah, I, I kind of remember your group. He goes, are you still doing that? And he said, no, I'm not still doing that. Gave it up. Last time, last event we played was a Quaker picnic. And I'm like, oh, wow, a Quaker picnic. Okay. And you know, with the Quaker tradition, you just go in and you sit in silence for, that's your church service. You sit in silence for 30 minutes. And if something moves you to speak, you speak. But it's it's all about quiet and in silence. And so the priest asked the man and says, did you go to a Quaker service? And he said, yes. He said, can you describe it to me? He goes, well... I would say that it's probably the most profound and most pleasant hour of silence I've ever had. And then this priest begins to give a history lesson and a lecture on silence and how we need silence. 
and how we push silence out. We don't know how to be alone with ourselves. And I'm sitting here thinking, okay, 7.30 in the morning, Nashville Airport, I'm about to bail on going on a silent retreat and I'm getting a lecture about silence from this Orthodox priest. So I'm like, ah, maybe I should go. As a matter of fact, I called Sarah Hart to tell her. I called Sarah Hart to tell her oh. what, was, what was happening. <laughs> and she was like, I think you need to get on that plane. So I got on the plane, flew out. About the third night into being at the monastery, um, things had quieted down. Ian Crone had told me to take a book called Into the Silent Land. At that point, I resisted all Christian writing. I was more into kind of Buddhism, Zen stuff. And, and um, so I brought like a Zen book and that book. And he said, just trust me, bring the book. So I brought the book with me and I'm opening it up and I'm reading it. And things start to thaw out inside of me. First night I was there, I had to drink because I had to get over the shakes. Second night I was there, I only had a couple of beers. And I have my private hermitage. It's so quiet, I'm scared to urinate because of the noise it's going to make. It's so quiet. I'm like, it's terrifying. And I'm, I'm up there uh, and the third night in, I go out and I sit on this rock. I am not expecting anything. You have to understand, John, that at this point, I am just utterly convinced that I have left that Christian stuff behind. I'm done. But I was listening to this thing that someone put, I don't know how I got on my computer, but it was called something from Richard Rohr. And I was listening to that and reading this book that Ian suggested. And I, it is quiet enough that the words started sinking in a little bit. I'm sitting there on this cliff, I'm in nature and I forgot the enchantment of nature, how much healing that can do for you. And just, I was so overwhelmed with just this quiet sense of like, it wasn't impersonal cosmic goo. It was like a personal thing mm -hmm. and it was love. And I began to weep and I wept and I wept. And the thing that fell out of my mouth just spontaneously was, I'm so sorry I forgot you. Mm -hmm. And man, I had, like, I don't even know how to talk about it. It's one of those where all, all spiritual languages is just words trying to wrap themselves around experience saying it's like this. And the words fail, but mm -hmm. we worship the words. Mm -hmm. that's, what, that's what we're guilty of. We're, we worship the information. So at that point, I had this profound experience and it stayed with me for the next two days. I took a test that I brought with me. I wasn't going to go back to any kind of 12-step recovery. I was going to do smart recovery, rational recovery, mm -hmm. which is no, no spirituality. I, I took this test to see if I was an alcoholic. Yes, I am. So I drove back to the airport. I get on the flight. I go into Phoenix to get a connecting flight. I'm, I'm running late because my flight was delayed. I'm on Southwest, no reserve seats. I finally get on the plane. I sit down. This is six days later. And up walks this Orthodox priest and his <laughs> wife. They sit, no they sit behind me on the way back. Oh, my gosh. And there was something in me that, like, said, Mark, it's time for you to pay attention. Yeah. Stop thinking that you got all this figured out. You've gone from being arrogant where you're certain about your Christian religion beliefs to you're certain about this other thing. And either way, I'm being kind of like a fundamentalist. And so when I got back, I was so convinced that that experience was going to save me. I'd never drink again. And I drank in two days. 
And then my wife confronted me about some stuff and I found out we weren't doing as well as I thought. And I went into outpatient and that was six and a half years ago. This time I went and met with the priest because my sponsor told me, you got a lot of religious baggage. You need to do, we do a fifth step where you kind of take inventory and you give everything out. You get it all out. It's way different than therapy. It's a lot different when you're paying a therapist than to have another person who suffers from the same thing as you calling you on your bullshit, you know? And and so um, he said, you got to go see this priest. And I went and saw this priest. I told him everything that happened. And he had 38 years of of sobriety. Hmm. And he looked at me and he said, I told him everything that happened, sexual molestation, my stepfather, all this stuff. And he looked at me and he said, Mark, I'm so sorry all that happened to you. But it's time for you to let that shit go. Mm. He said, uh, you are really, really spiritually distracted. How about this? How about let's just work on what's going on with you regarding your addiction? Let's just stay focused. How about the next year you just commit that your spirituality is going to be grounded in these 12 steps and reach out to other people. And he used some colorful language. He was a great priest because he told me that basically I'm the only person that could F this up now. Right. If I keep doing it the way I think it's to be done. And he told me, he said, you know, you, you've, you've, you've got spirituality, but you've never been able to sit under it. Mm. You've never, you never have allowed it to change you. You've been always wanting to change it. Mm-hmm. And there's no perfect tradition out there. But if you've never practiced it and you only know about it, you haven't really done it. And mm-hmm. you don't know. You're, you're basically having an opinion about an experience you've never had. You got a lot of ideas, but I'm not hearing a whole lot of, I have done this. I hear a whole lot of, I have thought about this. I have read mm-hmm. about this. And that changed my life. So I, at that point, I just decided, man, I'm, I'm, I need humility, man. I'm yeah. an arrogant guy. I'm, you know, not only am I an alcoholic, I'm an artist. So that makes me a dual diagnosed, arrogant egomaniac with an inferiority complex. That's me. With so trauma, I, with PTSD and with, trauma. Yes, yes, yes. All of that. All, that all of, all of that. And so my life changed in this way. Spirituality became a path rather than a place to gather information. It became a- Or a destination. That's right. And it became a practice and there's an openness about it. And I will tell you that moment at Big Sur was my breaking open moment. It was my big bang. What I know and what I believe right now is that my universe is still expanding. It's my big bang and it's still happening. Has it been easy? Oh God, no. Has it been terrifying? Yes. Have I gone through some horrible things in sobriety, the death of my nephew, marital problems, all kinds of things. Absolutely. Loss of friends, dear, dear close friends. Yes. 
But my spirituality, for me at least, I'm just saying it for me, is rooted in practice. This morning, before I met with you, I got up and I did my meditation. I sat in 20 minutes in silence. I read, I talked to a couple of people that mean that 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 enhance my life. I no longer need to try to stand out. I want to be a part of, I want to belong. I need to be a human among humans, a worker among workers. That's why I'm the guy who, when they talk about, let's have a musician meeting, a special recovery musician meeting for musicians only. I'm like, oh no, musicians already think they're special enough. Exactly, right, right. You know, we don't need to feed our terminal uniqueness because I've heard plenty of people leave recovery because nobody got them. When the truth is, is that they just never got on the over the idea that nobody's supposed to get you, man. Right. It's not our job to get you. You get in here and let's get each other. Right. Let's figure out who we are together. That's been the greatest gift for me. And as a result of that, you know, I've uh, been attending Episcopal Church again and went from uh, kind of like a, a mindfulness meditation back to centering prayer, which is rooted in the teachings of Thomas Keating. And I've just allowed myself to be open at this point. You know, I don't have a lot to defend my opinions and my judgments when they start getting going and I'm starting to criticize everything because it's not meeting up to my standards. I know my ego is kicking in again. Hmm. And um, the good thing about having broken people in your life that are working on their brokenness is that they will call you. <laughs> I'll tell you. Yeah, right. Hey, Mark, you know, Mark, man. <laughs> I don't think you're seeing that clear. And, mm. and, or as a matter of fact, you sound like you're really afraid. That's why you're so mad at that person. Just things I need to hear in my own life that keep me right-sized, my expectations right-sized. And I've learned to forgive, man. Mm. I tried to forgive my stepfather for so long. Mm. I tried so hard, but I thought that it was just like an exercise where you just think about it or you pray about it. It was work and, it and it's an ongoing process, right? you know, and to, to set myself free by accepting them as broken, flawed, fellow sick people like me, spiritually sick like me, rather than their piece of garbage, you know, all they ever wanted to do, reducing them down to the worst thing that they've ever done, right? which is basically reducing their humanity. I don't want people reducing me down to the worst thing exactly. I've ever done, right? right. you know? But to see them as a whole person, because I want to be seen as a whole person, makes it a lot easier for me to forgive people. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm so glad that I've learned, to, you know, that I'm still walking with a limp. I don't want to be completely whole. I want to be broken. And, and the other thing I'll say well, this to you, Well, I have good news for you. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll, I'll, I'll say this too, John. Um, I was talking to somebody, and I, and I get this a lot, you know, because I'm older now, you know, and I'm kind of like, Young artists reach out and all that kind of stuff, you know, and so many people are just, I'm done with this. I'm done with, with, with this, you know, whatever, however I was raised, Christianity, da, 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 da. When I ask them questions about how much volunteer work have you done? Mm -hmm. How many people did you reach out to, do, to today that you thought might need your help? You know, how, how much time have you spent in meditation? How much time have you spent doing da, 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 all these things? What you discover is that it really hasn't been tried. It's just been talked about. It's been kind of assumed because they grew up in it. And then you get angry at it and you leave it thinking that you did it. 
but you never actually did it. You know, you did part of it, but you didn't do the main part of it. That's, that's probably when, when someone says, I don't believe that there's, it's a benevolent universe. I don't believe that, that, um, I don't believe that there's that love's at the center of all this. I just, I don't believe that God's personal, whatever they, they struggle with. I just say, are you personal? Are you able to love? Are you benevolent? So do you think impersonal matter just kind of came up and just said, hey, uh, let me tell you how to love to where your heart aches. You know, I, by discovering my humanity, I'm discovering maybe actually how the universe is run, designed, however you want to say it, you know, and it's made me much more comfortable in my own skin. Uh, although, man, you know, like anybody else, I have crazy moments, you know. particular kind of music is designed to push you into contemplation. And I'm just going to say, and from my perspective, you've become uh, a sort of priest for other people. Uh, you know, your the, the music you are creating is leading other people, giving them a space. It's almost like a chapel on Spotify, you know, <laughs> and, uh, and it's, it's, uh, it's this thing where it doesn't matter what they bring into it. Somebody can have a very different perspective. Yeah. We're, we're all still working on the same problem. And I still believe in that benevolent, uh, thing going on. And I think that God is drawing people towards him. And when we just put up the tent and people enter that tent, I have enough faith in the goodness of love that everybody can find that in their own way. And at sometimes people will come to me then and ask me, what do you think about this? How can, and that's what happens in those meetings. That's what happens in those friendships. But the, the, uh, the compulsion some of us have felt to project and to preach and to offer those things before we're asked, uh, yep. is, uh, is not as helpful as we probably thought it was. Actually, <laughs> Ian Crone said that, that he thinks that there are some people, uh, who are so outspoken about their loss of faith. He thinks that they're, he thinks they're being cruel. Mm-hmm. He thinks that, 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 it took them a long time to get there and they're trying to talk people into getting there before they're ready to get there. And that can leave people without a, a center to rest upon. If they're going to end up changing their beliefs, let them do that. Let them find their own journey, their own way. And, you know, the bottom line is that you're right. I, I don't, you know, what I believe is that those three words, G-O-D, because when I first came back into recovery, I, I didn't like the word. But it's three letters that represents a mystery that I allow myself now to participate in and be a part of rather than sit on the sidelines and analyze it, criticize it, be angry at it, wave my finger at it. 
I want to be in the middle of it, you know, and and so that's that to me is it requires my participation. And I do believe this is just my belief that that love God, G.O.D., is that magnetic center that is drawing us towards wanting to love more, wanting to be understood. It's a longing. It's a thirst. And so when I'm moving into places where I'm starting to get dark again or whatever, I try to remember this longing is my magnet. It's the thing that connects me. That longing is real. It's the place where when I don't know how to be in my own skin or I'm doubting some of the things that, you know, I doubt, I remember that longing. I remember that thirst. And I don't think that that is... uh, me duping myself into something it's real it's genuine and the new music that we've done the last three records mysterium universalis and silencia that has to do with the death of my nephew you know my sister called me and my my nephew suffered from nf2 neurofibromatosis too and he was like a son to me you know um he was in my will and chris and i were going to dedicate every give everything to him and my other nephew but clark and i had a very special bond and it was one of my biggest fears of him passing. And my, my sister called me and she said, I, she, she said, what are you doing? I said, nothing. She goes, are you busy? And I said, no. She said, I have really horrible news. I said, what? And she said, Clark died. And I mean, as I sit here, I just feel it in my body. Mm. And I fell, I collapsed. And, um, you know, I immediately offered to call everybody for her to tell her, to tell them that Clark died, you know, calling my mom, his grandma, calling my dad, his grandfather, and giving them the worst news probably that they've ever had. And to hear some of the reactions, the guttural, visceral reaction. But I called my sponsor first before I made any of those calls because what I realized myself and what a lot of people who grew up in evangelicalism we have a really bad habit of taking our pain out on everybody. Mm. And if we don't do something with our pain, we're going to transmit it. As Richard Rohr says, we don't transform it, we transmit it. And it comes out in a lot of passive aggressive ways, you know? And so it's like, I'm getting even with the church, man. I'm getting even with the way I was raised. And I knew that I needed to get all this out before I called everybody. Cause this is not about me. And I called my sponsor and I just told him everything. And, I didn't know what else to do except that we were making a much different record. And when I came back from the funeral, I just told Andrew, I can't make this music. I can't, I can't make this kind of music. It's got to go a different direction. And I just decided to take this Rudolph Otto book called uh, the idea of the Holy. I think it's that that's what it is. And it's that mysterium tremendum fascination. I can't have, don't, don't know how that last word is pronounced but how it's just a mystery, you know, and how we live in mystery. In him, in God, we live, move, and have our being, which is another way of saying, I am surrounded by mystery, swimming in mystery. And Mysterium came out of that 40-piece choir, huge string section, and I wrote it for my nephew, and I wrote it mainly for my sister. That record did what I wanted it to do, which was to honor Clark and give my sister a space where she could grieve. And it has. And it ended with the album Silencia, which is back to Prelude to Silence. I wanted 
I wanted Mysterium to happen, which is kind of like grief. You're overwhelmed. And the cover of that is kind of like, almost looks like an altar where you're mm-hmm. offering things. You're just like, I'm done. And then Universalis is kind of like more of a vertical climb up out of that. You're just, you know, you still got to take it with you, but you're carrying it now. You're trying to go upward with it. And so the cover has this kind of like upper mobility. And then Silencia just ends in this rainwater that the artist used to do a pencil sketch with. And it's just blue. And so you go from grief breaking you open to trying to figure out how to make space for that grief and still move forward in life to the wisdom that might come if you haven't allowed that to make you a bitter, angry person. You realize that you're in solidarity with everyone that's in suffering. You end up in a place of silence where there's space for wisdom to be there. The wisdom of the experience that you've been through. And in that quiet, I think, you end up finding where you belong. And so after making a trilogy like that, you know, we just decided it's time to like not release a record this year and maybe take a little bit of a break and just let that sit for a while. That's mm-hmm. our statement, you know. A lot of people are discovering Hammock for the first time this year. And they have that whole trilogy to journey through. And things like the Gervais, you know, the yeah. the, the, the new, you guys have had stuff being placed in film and TV all along, but that you've had a new level of placements. You know, John, the thing is, man, is about the Ricky Gervais thing is that like, uh, I mean, I know where he stands and all of that. And, and, and I, I, I actually can relate with it, you know, cause he's yeah. very, he's a very thoughtful guy as to where he very stands, smart, but, yeah. but the, there's an empathy that's, that's also a cynicism and, 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 um, that's clothed in the, or that's, that's in all through afterlife and his empathy towards the human condition just the overall human condition, I think is pretty apparent. Um, yes. And so for me, it's kind of like he calls out bullshit, you know? Yeah, he definitely yeah. does. But there's an empathy underneath it that that just really understands that as humans, we're kind of hurled into a strange existence, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And it's puzzling and it's baffling. And people get mad about him being outspoken about his atheism. It's like, I'm sure he's probably out mad about you being so outspoken about your Christianity too. You know, I mean, there's several ways to look at it. Especially um, when you don't, when your Christianity or when anybody's Christianity is not coupled with uh, actions that are soaked in love and grace and mercy mm -hmm. and all that stuff, they're, everybody's right to be angry by that being something that we lead with. I totally, I I think that that's legitimate. I think that by being so compassionate uh, on a, just a purely artistic level, I feel like it kind of undercuts the stridency that you often encounter from 
what I would call kind of those angry, hardcore atheists. And um, it does put people back in the same boat. We are on a human journey together. That's right. That's right. It is surprising, but I guess, I don't know. You know, he seems kind of like a guy who does a lot of kind of reflection like that. Mm -hmm. And that music is good for that. Now, you also have a label. You're kind of doing a hammock label where you're bringing new artists and putting them out through your platform as well now, right? Yeah. um, We've done a a Scent of Everest, which is a post-rock band. We did a thing that we were involved in called The Summer Kills. There's another artist that is our main other artist, Slow Meadow, Matt Kidd. Um, And then we're hoping that my, my wife will get around to finishing what she's working on which is way different than anything she's ever done it's 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 pretty gorgeous and um and i don't know what else is going to happen but 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 uh right now that's enough for us you know encouraged by you being so transparent with your story. I feel like as I look around the landscape and I look at myself, it's ironic. I'm just now finishing a course on the psychology of personal transformation for me finishing my degree and, and mindfulness, active engagement in our own story is so critical. So many, it's so hard for us to do that and seeing and hearing about how engaged you are with this and how thoughtful you are about it. Um, Again, I go back to, uh, for me, a lot of Celtic spirituality is something I've been dropping my anchor into. And this idea of thin places, you know, they mm-hmm. talk about where the barrier mm-hmm. is really thin. And music is something that can help us find and realize how thin the barrier between uh, spiritual awareness, uh, mysticism, and not, again, it's a, it's a different thing than most people think of when they think of uh, mysticism. But um, your stuff has been really helpful for a lot of people. And I, um, I just encourage you in it and keep going. Don't take too much time off, but take enough time off to reflect, you know, and, um, because this country, this world is, is in a world of hurt right now. And, um, physically, medically, culturally, spiritually, um, we can see the problems of the individual writ large, and we can see the problems in the church. We can see, and it, a lot of it does go back to the same thing. We see what happens to an individual when he or she experiences abuse and that pain festers and those questions aren't answered. We can see that in the church, you know, and um, I think that a lot of the same answers you're talking about not having found, but finding are the same kinds of things we as a group, as a, as a church, as a community need to be finding as opposed to thinking we found. And um, absolutely, that's a, that's a, a journey you know that, that we're on it's not a destination we show up to and say hey i found it I'm, I'm good which is what i think mysticism and the truest purest sense is what it's all about
really want to thank Mark for his time and his generosity with us today. This has been amazing. By the way, there actually was more to this conversation, believe it or not. After I stopped recording, Mark and I went on a bit of a theological sidetrack that was pretty fun, so I started the recording up again. I also asked him about the possibility of Hammock doing live music in the future, and we even talked about Common Children a little bit. But this episode has gone on long enough. I'm going to save that extra stuff for our upcoming backstage area for folks who get on board to help support this show financially. I promise something is developing along those lines, so stay tuned. As I climb up on my soapbox to wrap this up, my mind is still swirling around the idea of listening. And after talking to Mark, I'm really convicted about my own inability to deal with silence. Now, while Hammock's music is not technically silence, of course, its lack of lyrics and even resistance to typical melodic hooks and rhythmic patterns challenges my heart and mind. And I'll be very honest, I have a hard time with quiet. I just can't get my mind to shut off. My internal dialogue never stops, and that's not always helpful. But I have become so used to the noise around me and the noise within me that the absence of that noise upsets me. I think what I am often afraid of is that some of the things I have kept buried deep down or locked up tight might come to the surface if I start listening to the echoes coming from within me. I need the noise because I'm afraid of the silence. But why is that? Why do we need words constantly bouncing off our ears? Why are some of us so nervous about the space around us, the mysteries we can't quite describe, and the ideas we definitely can't contain? Is it because we greatly prefer the myth of control? Do our choruses and rhymes comfort us with the illusion that we can contain this? We can own this? We can understand this? There's no need to walk on water or drink from the terrifying cup. Or is it that we want to hear voices that reassure us that we are right? We are the good guys. We are the winners. Do we just need to hear someone cheer us on? What if they're cheering us right off a cliff? I so appreciated Mark's honesty and transparency today. It is overwhelming and encouraging for me to hear someone journey through so much pain and come through by not reducing the mystery to something easy. This is hard stuff, but so beautiful. And when I get to this level of grace, the words slow down. The confidence shifts from my ideas and my ability to reduce things to a manageable level, and I just have to let go. I have to realize that if this God story is worth following, it must be bigger than I can contain, or understand, or own, or even articulate. There are times for me to just shut up and listen to the sound of grace as it works its way through my heart. Maybe you can relate to Mark's struggle with substance abuse, maybe not, but the self-awareness he has come to, the mindfulness he is accomplishing, and the pastoral sensibilities he is demonstrating are inspiring to me. I love how he put it, 
This music, this forced contemplation, this quietude might help us discover things that are hidden in plain sight. I continue to ask myself and others this question. Can learning to listen to better music and listen to music better make us better people? Like Buddy Miller said, if it is part of the process of helping us grow into better listeners, actually hearing others better, then of course it can. And this conversation with Mark and the music he and Andrew have crafted with Hammock challenges me to slow down, to breathe, to relax, and to feel. The listening here has everything to do with hearing that whisper deep within us, that longing, that hunger. It allows me to hear myself. It has invited me to weep, to smile, and to release. Ecclesiastes 3, one of the most enchanting, frustrating, and mysterious chapters in the Bible, starts out with that famous a time for everything section we all know, which of course includes that truth, a time to be silent and a time to speak. But a few verses later, there is this amazing verse that says, he has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. He has planted eternity in our hearts, but not given us the ability to fathom it. That sounds like a generous invitation to wonder and a strong admonishment toward humility, if you ask me. It reminds me that while it is good to contemplate, to discern, to study, to think, it is also good to be quiet, to listen, and to invite that still small voice to speak. Depending on how long it's been since the last time we made room for that, who knows what we might have missed. I also can't help but remember Jesus' words captured in chapter 11 of Matthew's Gospel. John the Baptist had sent his disciples to ask Jesus if he was the one who was to come or if they should wait for another. I'm pretty sure that even there in prison, with his head about to be removed from his body, John knew the answer to that question, but he wanted his followers to hear it for themselves. Jesus gives them a wonderful, mysterious answer full of poetry and riddles. The bottom line was that yes, he was the one, and John was the Elijah they had all been waiting for. Whoever had ears to hear, he said, let them hear. Then Jesus rebuked the religious folks for their fickle hearts, referencing children who mimicked the adults who played celebratory pipe music for weddings or funeral dirges for mourning. He essentially said that neither the austerity of John nor the more joyful lifestyle of Jesus was satisfactory for them. They weren't listening. They couldn't hear the music. But after rebuking the self-righteous and the overly religious, Jesus made the most incredible offer. Come unto me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke, or my teaching, upon you, and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. I think that maybe, just maybe, the reason I don't like the quiet is because I want my own yoke. I don't want to submit to a gentle leader. My fear demands something stronger than that. But boy, does rest for my soul sound good. The thing about taking on the yoke of Jesus, it's like taking on the teaching of a rabbi or guitar lessons from a master. You don't do it once and you're done. It's a discipline you enter into. That's where the similarity to the yoke of an ox comes in. But this burden, it turns out, is light. This is more of that counterintuitive, radical, amazing grace kind of stuff that we have to have ears to hear. 
When we hear the pipes, let's dance. When we hear the dirge, let's mourn. And when we hear the quiet, let's not rush to fill it with noise. Maybe in that quiet, there is a still small voice waiting to welcome us to lay our burdens down. Okay, I'm climbing off my soapbox now. That's going to do it for this extra long episode of the True Tunes podcast. Thank you for hanging in with us to the end. I want to invite you to check out the show notes page for this episode for a list of resources, including links to recommended books from Mark and some links to addiction recovery resources. If you find yourself in the grip of something you know you cannot control, be that a substance or a behavior and you need help, please reach out to some professionals who can help you. This life is far too precious to spend in that kind of bondage. You'll find several resources listed in the show notes page, and I do hope you won't let this moment pass without taking steps toward the healing you need. And thank you to everyone who has been helping to spread the word for us about the show. We need your voice. And please drop reviews and ratings for us, especially at Apple. I want to thank my co-producer and engineer, Bruce A. Brown, for putting the show together so artfully. And also, as always, thank you to Phil Keggy and Rex Paul for our theme song, the special instrumental mix of Full Circle from their album, Illumination. And also, special thanks to Hammock for trusting us to use so much of their amazing catalog in this show. You can find their web store at hammockmusic.bandcamp.com, and we highly encourage you to do just that. You can find a list of each hammock track with links on the show notes page at truetunes.com. As always, the contents of the podcast are protected by U.S. copyright law and are the intellectual property of Gyroscope Productions, with the exception of songs or clips that are from previously copywritten materials. Everything on this episode is used by permission or under fair use provisions. This program is intended for the private use of our listening audience. Gyroscope Productions can be reached at truetunesmusic at gmail.com or P.O. Box 60401, Nashville, Tennessee, 37206. And yes, we do accept Christmas cards. Until next time, I pray that we all find time to slow down and listen to the sounds and the silence that invites us into ourselves, into peace, and into the kingdom. This is JJT saying, stay tuned and stay true. It's a noisy hymn, but I hope, only hope it'll get over to the non-believers.